The Crusaders are setting up these cases, case after case after case, claiming religious freedom, and then the conservative justices are coming through, and it's a collaboration. The crusade to weaponize religious freedom is a collaboration. They are setting out to make America a Christian nation by changing the very meaning of the First Amendment. It, I mean, it, it's appalling what, what is happening at the Supreme Court. That this court ignores the rules and ignores precedent so that it can take and decide these cases. That this court rips apart that long-standing precedent, some of it dating back to the founding, so that it can weaponize religious freedom. And that this court will literally rewrite facts and reality to reverse engineer decisions so that it can privilege conservative Christians. That's Andrew Seidel, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Andrew Seidel, Weaponizing Religious Freedom. The separation of church and state has long been a cornerstone of American democracy. The founders of the Republic, Jefferson, Madison, et al., insisted on a secular government unencumbered by religious dogma. However, in recent years, decisions by a conservative-dominated Supreme Court have increasingly blurred that barrier. How has this happened? Enter Leonard Leo and a pile of money. Co-chair of the highly influential Federalist Society, he has been in the forefront of weaponizing religious freedom. According to Andrew Seidel, Leo is universally recognized as the man who orchestrated the hostile takeover of the Supreme Court. He is responsible for the nomination and confirmation of John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Leo chose them, Seidel says, for their crusader ideology. The erosion of secular values poses a threat to democracy. To talk about weaponizing religious freedom is Andrew Seidel, a constitutional attorney. He's vice president of Americans for Separation of Church and State. He's the author of American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. He spoke at the Wisconsin Book Festival in Madison in mid-November 2022. And now, Andrew Seidel. Universal freedom or Christian privilege? Protection or weapon? Religious freedom has long been a shield. It's been that protection for the minority against the tyranny of the majority. It's protected all of us from atheists to evangelicals, Muslims to Mormons, Buddhists to Baptists, and everybody in between. Never, never in our history has it been a license to violate the rights of other people or to harm other people. But this packed Supreme Court, collaborating with a well-funded and powerful network of Christian nationalist organizations, we're going to call them crusaders, is changing that. They're changing the very meaning of this constitutional right. They're deliberately warping, perverting the meaning of religious freedom as a constitutional protection. So the Bible tells of beating swords into plowshares, but this packed court 
in case after case brought by these crusaders is doing the opposite. They are beating this universal freedom, this protection, into a weapon of Christian supremacy, a weapon that conservative Christians, and pretty much only conservative Christians, get to use to injure other people, to violate their rights, and impose their religion on everybody else. The Crusaders are the legal groups that are joining in this fight. Uh, they make up sort of this kind of like billion-dollar shadow network, and I, billion dollars is not an exaggeration. Uh, the organization I now work for, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, in one of our most recent cases before the Supreme Court, you may have heard of this case. It was Coach Kennedy versus the Bremerton School District, the football coach that wanted to impose his religion on other people's children at the 50-yard line. That case, we added up the budgets of the groups on the other side of this case, and it totaled over a billion dollars. So this is a billion-dollar shadow network. And the groups here are, let's see, Alliance Defending Freedom, Liberty Council, First Liberty Institute, the American Center for Law and Justice, Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Right, this is a veritable Orwellian word salad. And the Crusaders are setting up these cases, like the Coach case, case after case after case, claiming religious freedom, and then the conservative justices are coming through and knocking them down. It's a collaboration. The crusade to weaponize religious freedom is a collaboration. You have to understand that. And it is also, the reason I use the word crusade is because this is a war of conquest. It truly is. It's not, they're not looking to conquer land, but they are looking to conquer our Constitution and remake it in their image. They are setting out to make America a Christian nation by changing the very meaning of the First Amendment. It, I mean, it, it's appalling what, what is happening at the Supreme Court right now. So American Crusade tells the stories of what happened in each of those cases. And a lot of these cases are going to be cases that you remember. You remember hearing about them on the news. Maybe you remember them coming down. Uh, the gay wedding cake case out of Colorado. You may remember that one. Uh, the COVID cases when churches were challenging uh, health restrictions. Uh, the Muslim ban case. Uh, and then there's actually already an update to the book uh, available on the website for everybody who's got a copy uh, that goes over the coach case, the abortion case, the Dobbs decision, which just struck down, which is absolutely part of this crusade. And, and then there's also all these kind of cases that you may not remember that are just as important. Cases about school vouchers. Uh, cases about a huge cross on government property maintained with your taxpayer funds. Uh, the Hobby Lobby case. Some of you may or may not remember that one. And I've lived these cases. I've been on the front lines for a decade fighting these cases. I've briefed some. I've argued others. I've coordinated with the other groups who are litigating them. And what I really wanted to do was tell the true stories behind these cases. Because the way you remember them is inaccurate. What you've been taught and told and remember about these cases is, is not a true reflection of what really happened and often what the true arguments were in those cases. Um, if you remember back to 2005, Chief Justice John Roberts in his testimony uh, when he was nominated said that he's just a judge who just calls balls and strikes. That's all judges are supposed to do. There's actually a great new online article, or excuse me, media outlet that's critical of the court called Balls and Strikes and abbreviates itself BS, because that is. The, the other judges don't do that. I mean, Roberts and the other judges, they absolutely do not. They, they manipulate the facts and the law to reach a desired outcome. And in American Crusade, I actually dug deeper. 
Uh, I interviewed a lot of the folks that were involved in these cases. Uh, I went back and watched interviews. I listened to interviews. I went to oral arguments. All of these different things I dug deep to give you the true story. Uh, so for instance, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, that's the gay wedding cake case out of Colorado. I actually interviewed the couple that was involved in that case. I was the first person to speak to them after the case was decided. Um, and if you recall that decision, the Supreme Court actually essentially said that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which was the body in charge of enforcing the state Civil Rights Act, they said that the commission was hostile to the bakery's religion. And that's why they decided against the couple. And they said that because there were two commissioners who said mean things about the baker's religion. I kid you not. Essentially, the, the Supreme Court called these two commissioners who worked for the Civil Rights Commission anti-religious bigots. And so I actually went and I interviewed those two commissioners. Um, so American Crusade will tell you the true stories of these cases, what actually happened. And then there are some through lines that become clear as you see these stories, that this court wants to take these cases, that this court ignores the rules and ignores precedent so that it can take and decide these cases, that this court rips apart that long-standing precedent, some of it dating back to the founding, so that it can weaponize religious freedom, and that this court will literally rewrite facts and reality to reverse engineer decisions so that it can privilege conservative Christians. So those through lines provide this overarching narrative so that you can understand what is really going on. And I hope, I tried to give you that without the legalese and the jargon. Because we lawyers, we love to sound like lawyers. And I think a lot of times we hide behind legalese and jargon. And that makes the law inaccessible. And I did not want to do that. I think it's better to shed those trappings and look at the core of the cases. And I wanted to make it accessible for everybody. Because you have to understand what is going on. You have to understand the threat that we face and that our Constitution faces. And I think when you cut through all of that piffle and prattle that we lawyers love, you get to some pretty clear truths very early on. And the first one is that cases of religious freedom and the law colliding are actually pretty easy to solve. Most of these cases are not that difficult. The questions that arise are very easy to get to a result that would make everybody happy. Uh, so can a business, a limited liability corporation, refuse to serve a gay couple in violation of the civil rights laws because that owner is a conservative Christian? What about erecting and maintaining that 40-foot-tall Christian cross on government land with your taxpayer dollars? Can believers ignore rules that protect public health? Do Christians have a right to use the government's taxing power to fund their private Christian schools, even though we already pay for a public education system? Can the government official, or any government official actually, use their state power and state resources to promote their personal religion? What about giving one narrow religious belief the force of law to take away bodily autonomy from half the population? I mean, the answer to each of these questions should very obviously and very easily be a no. But the Crusaders have confused many Americans about where we draw these lines, deliberately, I think. 
And historically and legally, I, I do not think these are hard questions, again. And you can solve most of them by answering or drawing three basic lines. Now, I told you I tried to shun legalese. So I labeled these lines number one, lines number two, and line number three. Try to keep up, I know. Um, and the first, the first line, line number one, is we distinguish between action and belief. Your right to believe is absolute. Your right to act on that belief is not. So I open the book with stories about people letting Jesus take the wheel. Right? They can believe that Jesus wants to take the wheel, but if they act on that belief, the civil law can step in and say, no, we can fine them, we can take away their license, we can maybe force them into therapy, maybe we, they go to jail if they do some real damage, and there are a couple of people who did. Your right to believe is unlimited, your right to act on that belief is not. That's line number one. So then the second line is, okay, well, if the civil law can step in, when or where? Where, where do we say that that's okay? And this is easy, too. Where the rights of other people begin. You've all heard the old legal adage, your right to swing your fist ends at the other person's nose. Your right to exercise your religion ends where the rights of other people begin. Pretty basic. And then the third line is the line between church and state. And I think our side has done a remarkably job, bad job of talking about this. But our government has no religion to exercise. And it is an absolute abuse of power for a government official to use that power to promote their personal religion or use resources. And we ought to be talking about it like that, I think, a little bit more. So American Crusade lays out those lines, lays out those overarching themes, and then you can see in the true stories how these lines would apply and how the cases should have shaken out. And we see what should have happened. We see how easy it would have been to get to the right result in most of these cases. And you also see, when all of that nebulous twaddle is cut away, what is very clear, and that this is truly a crusade to alter the meaning of our First Amendment. And the question that I kept coming back to when I was writing this, after I would dive into every one of these cases and be blown away by how badly things had been distorted, was why? Why are they waging this crusade? Why are they seeking this weapon? And the answer to that is that it is largely a backlash against equality realized. And what I mean by that is that conservative white Christian American status as the dominant group in this country has been on the wane for a long time. Obviously so. They've lost the power and the privilege and the deference which they believe they are due. If you want a really good example of this from a Supreme Court justice, I would encourage you to go listen to Justice Sam Alito's speech in Rome this summer, which he gave at the Notre Dame Religious Freedom Summit. Uh, and he talked about how his religion was not being given the deference he believed it was due. Really remarkable. And we know that when a dominant group, I like to move, I'm going to try to stay near the mic, for the radio. Um, we know that when a dominant group or caste in a society feels threatened, that it reacts or overreacts in certain ways, often authoritarian ways. And that is why we are seeing conservative white Christian Americans turn to these so-called strongmen like Donald Trump, turn to Christian nationalism, turn to a violent insurrection. 
and turn to weaponizing religious freedom with this crusade. And there are actually some really fascinating studies that back this up. One survey found that simply mentioning the changing religious demographics in this country triggered a threat response in conservative white American Christians. And what I mean by that is that they went to more defensive political stances. So simply acknowledging the shifting demographics drove them towards Christian nationalism and drove them towards Donald Trump. And that suggests that they fundamentally misunderstand religious freedom as privilege. Truly, they enjoy the trappings of their dominant status. That is what they believe religious freedom means. And I was joking about the war on Christmas, but I mean, they see inclusion as a threat. The recognition of others, the existence of others, is threatening to their status. So to them, it's part of the war. It's a war on Christmas, right? I mean, uh, and actually, I wasn't going to read from the book, but I will read this part, because this is why I dedicated the book to American Christian nationalists. We're not coming for your rights. We're coming for your privilege. The crusade, the actual legal cases that are decided by this court, are all part of this quest to remake that protection into a weapon for maintaining that dominant group status. That's what they really are seeking here. And the expansion of equality and the withering of their racial and religious hegemony is the contested territory in most of these cases. Essentially, conservative white Christian Americans are raging against the dying of their privilege. And so they declared war. And in case after case, they are succeeding. Uh, and that is the story that American Crusade tells. And I, I, I believe it is not like a book that you have read before, uh, because it's exposing an attempt to warp and distort our law. Uh, it shows you that the justices are eager to take these cases, right? The Supreme Court gets to decide what cases it takes and doesn't. Gets to, it rejects something like 97 to 99% of the cases, depending on which term you're looking at. And they decide almost every religious freedom case that comes their way and decide them in favor of conservative Christians. Again, the simple fact is that this court wants to decide these cases. You know, the conservative justices on our court, they, they really are not impartial justices that are working to carefully determine the meaning of constitutional provisions without bias. Right? Again, the Crusaders didn't pack the court to have impartial justices deciding cases impartially. They put collaborators on the court on purpose. They blew all their political capital to do it. And I think that's probably the hardest truth for a lot of Americans, maybe not people listening, but certainly if you're a lawyer or have argued in front of courts, I think that's one of the hardest things for us to realize is that the ultra-conservative justices on this Supreme Court are crusaders, too. Uh, so Leonard Leo is universally recognized as the man who packed our Supreme Court, orchestrated the hostile takeover, and uh, I found an interview with a former employee who described Leo's mission like this. Quote, he figured out 20 years ago that conservatives had lost the culture war. Abortion, gay rights, contraception, conservatives didn't have a chance if public opinion prevailed. So they needed to stack the courts. And that's what they did. And, and pause to truly appreciate the anti-democratic goal in that, right? If we don't stack the courts, the majority's gonna rule. If we don't stack the courts, democracy's gonna work and we're gonna lose. 
And overall, we know that Leo's group spent about $540 million packing the court from the time of uh, blocking Merrick Garland up through putting Amy Coney Barrett on the court, so 2014 to 2020. And this summer, the news broke that Leo's new group received a $1.6 billion, that is billion with a B, dollar donation from one donor. That's a billion dollars more than he spent packing the Supreme Court. You'll learn that his job before that, Leo's job was described when it came to judicial nominees. He ran the Federalist Society. He ran the Judicial Crisis Network. He was described as the, quote, monitor of the nominee's ideological purity. The monitor of the nominee's ideological purity. He was the guy who was picking judges and justices for our Supreme Court. You remember the three lists of justices, potential justices that Trump put out when he was running? Leo wrote those lists. We know that he is responsible for the nomination and confirmation of John Roberts, Sam Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Clarence Thomas was a member of the Federalist Society, as were those other five that I just mentioned. There's video of Clarence Thomas and Leonard Leo joking on stage at a Federalist Society event in Texas, talking about how Leo is the third most powerful man in America, joking about it. So six votes on the Supreme Court. Leo chose five of them, and he chose them for their ideology. And it's a crusader ideology. So again, I know it's a hard truth for some people to swallow. I see a lot of heads nodding, so maybe not as much. But uh, these justices truly are crusaders. And I want to just pause on John Roberts for a second here, because he's getting this reputation in the media about being maybe more of a moderate, which is nonsense, I mean, just utter nonsense, which I do talk about a lot in the book. But I just want to share a couple points about Roberts's history when it comes to the crusade to weaponize religious freedom in particular. Uh, when he was in the Bushes, the first Bushes, Department of Justice, alongside Ken Starr, he wrote briefs arguing that public schools can impose prayer on other people's kids. Uh, at graduation ceremonies in particular, and that Christian Bible clubs can use public schools to organize and promote their their work. And then when he was in the Reagan White House, he actually supported a constitutional amendment that would have allowed public schools to impose prayer on kids. Uh, And in a legal memo, he said, quote, we still have an uphill battle to return prayer to schools. We battle return prayer to schools. That, I mean, that is the language of a crusader, very clearly. And the ploy to capture the courts worked, and we've got data to show that it worked. So before Roberts was chief justice, these religion won in front of the court a little less than half the time, between 40 and 45% of the time. After Roberts takes over, that ticks up to 82%. And it's not a shift in favor of religious freedom. It is a shift in favor of Christianity. And if you do those numbers, it was mainstream Christianity was favored about 44% of the time before Roberts, and that nearly doubles up to 85% of the time under Roberts. And those numbers, by the way, do not include the two most recent terms, which were just barn burners for conservative Christians. So American Crusade works to put a face on those numbers, on both sides, right? So if you look at the Muslim ban and some of the other recent death penalty cases, you see that this idea of religious freedom does not apply outside of conservative Christianity. Religious freedom is only for the select few. 
in front of the Roberts Court, the conservative Christians. So I want to get to your questions. I'm going to close out here, but I do have a captive audience, which is like a lawyer's favorite thing. So um, at, the, at this Supreme Court, justice is no longer blind. The new guiding principle of this Supreme Court is not the Constitution or the law, but simply this. Christianity wins. That's it. You want to make money betting on the outcome of a Supreme Court case? If it involves religious freedom, bet on the Christians. This, the, religious freedom is no longer a right that we possess individually and equally. Right? Sometimes other religions are going to win in front of the court, sure. But this court does not consider religious freedom a, a universal freedom. It considers it a Christian privilege. The one thing I will say on the good side of all of this is that this crusade is, in a way, suicidal. Their wins grow our opposition to it. Their wins in the abortion case, in the case of the coach imposing his religion on other people's kids, uh, in the case out of Maine, which forces now taxpayers to fund uh, these Christian schools that indoctrinate kids uh, and or just brutally discriminate against any LGBTQ students or staff or families, their wins swell our ranks. And remember, the whole reason for this crusade in the first place is the changing demographics and the fear that they have from that loss of their dominant group status. So their wins not only grow our side, but are actually creating a feedback loop that is furthering their own demise. I think you could see some of that in the election numbers. And that's because white Christian nationalists are working to privilege the chosen few. Every legislative and legal victory they notch alienates more people. It drives more people into our arms. It wakes more people up to the danger. And it really does drive, we've seen this at the, the group I work for, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. It drives more people into our arms. Uh, that's the group that I'm proud to represent on the front lines. Their power-hungry aggression is growing our movement. And I do believe despite how bleak sometimes things look. It's a good moment now. Post-election, I'm feeling much better. I do believe in the end that we will win. And that is because they are fighting only for themselves. And where they are selfish, we are selfless. We're fighting for we the people, all the people. And they're fighting for we the conservative Christians, and that's it. I'll say this. I'll, I'll just say there are more concrete solutions that I get into in the book. I'm sure some of you will ask about some. None of them are quick and easy. And that is, the, I think, the most important thing you need to take away. I do believe we can win this, but it's not going to be. There's no silver bullet. The Crusaders played a very long game, and they won. Uh, they're doing a massive amount of damage, and it's going to take us a long time to undo that damage. But I think, I think we can. I, and above all, I think what we have to do, especially lawyers out there, is we have to shatter the myth that this judicial system is going to fix this for us. It is part of the problem. It truly, truly is. So we have to shatter that myth, and above all, we have to organize and message in ways that builds power. And that is what American Crusade aims to do. And with that, I will stop for questions. Thank you. You're listening to Andrew Seidel, Weaponizing Religious Freedom, 
This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program and his book, American Crusade, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. The question is about Justice Scalia whether he had specific skills as a crusader that made him effective. I think not, actually. Um, I do talk about Scalia a couple times in the book, in particular in one case uh, called Employment Division v. Smith, which is a case about drug counselors uh, taking drugs and then getting fired for taking drugs and then not getting unemployment as a result, a case that's been just, like, distorted beyond all recognition for the most part. Uh, And Scalia, Scalia had a penchant for bombast and hyperbole and an acid pen. He was, I mean, he was a true bigot, actually, is what it boils down to. And that helped and hurt him. It drew attention to his writing, especially in law schools and in the media. He got quoted a lot more. And that was actually why he did it. We have him on record saying that. But it also hurt him in the long run because he couldn't resist including that in opinions. And so I talk about that a lot in the Smith case and how I think he kind of blew it a little bit in that case in the opinion that he wrote. I do not think he was a particularly effective crusader in terms of consummating many of these cases because he had a very hard time drawing people to his opinions and building any type of consensus and he was doing it largely before the court was packed. And I think he hurt probably more than he helped in the long run with his bigotry. Is the ABA Fair and impartial when they vet candidates for the Supreme Court. Yeah, so ABA basically nominates, or excuse me, um, evaluates nominees based on are they qualified or not to hold a lifetime appointment to the federal bench. And yes, they are, for the most part, remarkably impartial. They rated more of Trump's nominees than any other in history as unqualified, uh, so they were attacked as a partisan group as a result, but they, they really are not. They do a pretty excellent job in that regard. And try to stay nonpartisan so that they can continue to do that. Uh, The question is about oral arguments at the Supreme Court uh, involving Indian Welfare Child Act care case uh, that they heard arguments for this morning um, and whether or not there are elements of Christian and white privilege in that. Fair? Um, And I I do think there are, and they're actually, in the Smith case is one of the cases where there's uh, this question of Native American religions coming in um, and getting distorted. Um, we often th- you'll, you'll hear about that case as two Native Americans challenging uh, these provisions. One of them was actually a, just a white guy. Um, he gets lumped in all the time. Uh, there's also another case um, that I talk about in here involving Native Americans. So I, this, it is sort of a common thread. Um, I don't know what the court's going to do with that one because Gorsuch is a little bit of a wild card when it comes to, to tribal rights. Um, but... Those elements are certainly run throughout. Um, And I'm not familiar enough with the facts of those cases to say that the court is distorting them, but I would not be at all surprised. One of the things I realized um, a couple weeks ago, I was giving a book talk in Texas, uh, and I got asked a question, and I realized that because I've been on the front lines of so many of these cases and seen how the court has distorted them, in a way this is almost autobiographical at times. Um, so I, I tell the story of the first time 
I realized the court was just altering reality and how jarring it was. And it was small. It was actually a very small moment. So it was, uh, it was the Town of Greece versus Galloway case. And so this is a case where uh, Town of Greece, New York, and at their town meetings, they have Christian prayers. And every one of their prayers is Christian. And government prayer is like very clearly unconstitutional and should not be a thing. Uh, if you want to know more about that, you can read my first book, The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. Um, but there's a bad 1983 opinion from the Supreme Court that says, eh, we've been doing it for a long time. It's probably okay. And one of the things courts are supposed to look at when determining whether or not it's eh, okay is who is the audience for those prayers. And Town of Greece giving all Christian prayers. And it's a, the, the, the room is set up like a typical local government room. So you have the podium in the middle of all the rows of chairs where the citizens can come up and address the city councilors who sit up on the dais, you know, behind their, their desks with their, their bigger chairs. And the prayer giver walks up to that podium and delivers the prayer. And instead of delivering the prayer towards the city councilors, they actually turned the podium around 180 degrees to face the audience. You can't get a more clear example of this prayer being literally directed at the audience, not at the government itself. So the, clearly the audience is the citizens. And the Supreme Court just changed that opinion. Anthony Kennedy just said, oh, the, the audience for these prayers is the city councilors. You know, it's like a half a sentence in the opinion. And it, it was, it's stunning because Americans United, the group I work for now, is the group that took that case. And one of the things that made that case so great was that every prayer was Christian and that very clearly that fact was on our side. And it was so clearly on our side that the court just changed it. And didn't get, that got noticed nowhere. Uh, Kagan calls it out a little bit in her dissent, but just to, to correct it, not to actually call it out and point out that they're, they're changing it. And you go from that to the case, the case of the coach this term at the Supreme Court. And that one is just, I mean, the, the court lied to us in that opinion. There is no other way to put it. So that was a case involving a coach that would go to the 50-yard line and pray with student athletes. And we know for a fact that students felt pressured to pray to play. They felt like they had to pray if they wanted to play. That is in the record. There's no doubt about it. And at the lower court, at the Ninth Circuit, the judge, one of the judges, actually calls out the crusader in this case. Uh, it's a group called First Liberty Institute, the, the group representing the coach and says that they are spinning a, quote, deceitful narrative. That the judge actually compared the arguments they made to the real facts in a chart in the opinion. I've never seen anything like this. I've not, I, if a judge said that I was spinning a deceitful narrative, I would go bury my head in the sand for like a year before I would ever consider arguing something again before a court. The crusader appealed to the Supreme Court. Because they knew that that Supreme Court, the justices there, were going to be more receptive to those lies. And that court, the Supreme Court, adopted the deceitful narrative wholesale, presented it as truth. 
to the point where Justice Sonia Sotomayor included photographic evidence to the contrary in her dissent. Three photographs showing this judge with players, with other adults, in the middle of the field having these prayers, even though the Crusaders are saying, oh, no, this is just a moment of personal quiet prayer. So I would be not at all shocked to learn that they are torturing facts in this case as well. Um, it, it, it was, I think it's one of the harder things for people to grasp about this court. Uh, and it's one of the things that made the work of writing this book so rewarding. Um, I mentioned earlier the Colorado Civil Rights Commissioners, who the court labeled as anti-religious bigots. Uh, and I got to speak with one of those commissioners. His name is Raju Jairam. In the eyes of history, he is named as a bigot by our Supreme Court. And that's how he's going to be remembered. And the, I, as far as I know, I'm the only person, American Crusade is the only book so far to tell the other side, the true side of that story. And the same goes for the other commissioner, a woman named Diane Rice. She got into civil rights because when she was a student at George Washington, she happened to be walking around with several friends on the National Mall and heard a speech about some guy in his dream. That was where she got into civil rights for the first time. And she was labeled an anti-religious bigot. The quote that the court called anti-religious was Raju Jairam trying to quote a New Mexico Supreme Court opinion. He was paraphrasing it. He just doesn't have the kind of recall. And it's, this, it's one of the same opinions that Ruth Bader Ginsburg used in her Hobby Lobby dissent. She wasn't anti-religious. Neither was the New Mexico Supreme Court. The, the, this court manufactured hostility and labeled two like very diligent civil servants as bigots to give this bakery a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, so the question is, how does this translate to lower courts, and is there any hope Biden will do something to counteract this? Fair, fair summation. So, I mean, it translates in really awful and remarkable ways. Um, I, do, I do talk about lower courts quite a bit in the book, including how emboldened we're seeing them right now. Uh, in, the, in the coach decision, the court... I'm going to get into a little bit of legalese here. Uh, there's something called the Lemon Test, which is based on a case uh, where the Supreme Court, back more than 50 years ago, looked at all of the times that religion and the law had clashed and synthesized all of those cases into three basic principles that courts should look at when they're deciding, does this violate the separation of church and state? Um, and the court has been gunning for that decision for a long time. And in the Coach case, they didn't do what they did in the Dobbs opinion and, and come out and say, we are overturning the Lemon case, as they said, came out and said, we're overturning Roe. They said, ah, that decision's been criticized for a long time. It's basically been on a shelf. That was the phrase Gorsuch used. And that gives license to any lower court judge that doesn't like the controlling opinions of the court to ignore those controlling opinions so long as they can point to some criticism of an opinion or the fact that the, the courts may not have used it in every single case throughout history. Oh, they didn't use it there. It, it was put on a shelf. Uh, and and we, we really are seeing, that's just one example recently that happened that's fresh in my mind. We are seeing just a... a, a this is happening at every level, especially in some of the more conservative circuits, the Fifth Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit, the Eighth Circuit. Um, they're, they are emboldened, for sure. Um, Biden, uh, in his first year 
outpaced Trump for appointing judges. Um, so has been trying to rebalance the, the judiciary. I don't think any of that, um, it matters and it's important, but it also matters that we do that at the Supreme Court itself. Yeah, so the question's about historical parallels. Um, there are a lot of really fascinating aspects. I, I focused on the cases from the last decade. Uh, and I actually, uh, the, there's a call that this Supreme Court under Roberts issues for a crusade. This didn't just happen spontaneously. The court called for this crusade in a case in 2010 uh, involving a Christian cross in the Mojave Desert. Um, <clears throat> uh, but, I mean, that's just the, the culmination of the crusade. The, the roots of it are, are, are much deeper and, and further back in our history. And really, a lot of them go back to Brown versus Board of Education. Right? It, go, it goes back to why, again, are we seeing this crusade? It's to preserve that dominant group status. And so much of what we are seeing, can re, you can really trace directly back through to Brown versus Board. I mean, for in, I mean, even the decision in the Dobbs case, even overturning Roe versus Wade can be traced right back to that. I mean, we know that abortion was not an issue that, that certainly the religious right and the moral majority cared about at the time the Roe opinion came down. Uh, Catholics, for the most part, cared about it, but that was pretty much it. Five years after, they decided, they chose abortion as the wedge issue to divide the American electorate because they knew that overt racism and segregation was no longer palatable to enough people for them to uh, use it to gain any type of political power. Uh, and so, I mean, we see a lot of that. The push for school vouchers goes directly back to Brown versus Board of Education, is directly an attempt to maintain segregated public schools. I mean, that, that is why we have school School choice goes directly back to that as well. Uh, and and I, I do trace a lot of that history in the later chapters of the book, especially when I get into the cases involving public schools. Uh, it's a fascinating and very uh, terrifying history. So yes, historical parallels for sure. Yeah, so the, what, are, what, are the, what are the demographic trends, basically, is the question. I mean, so they are, they are certainly on the wane. Um, and I think it depends on the, the studies you look at, but there are a few trends that become clear. You are seeing a rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, right? Non-religious Americans are continuing to grow and grow and grow uh, at the expense of all white Christians for the most part. Nuns also seem to be solidifying uh, as a potentially powerful political block. Um, but I mean, you're, you also see it in um, less obvious trends, right? We had our first black president. Uh, we had uh, almost uh, first female president. We have our first female black vice president now. Uh, it's things like that, too, that, that are very scary for them. I mean, the Obama presidency in particular, like, did a number on, on the psyche on that side. It's not because, again, it's, it's them sensing a threat and them sensing the, or feeling the waning of their, their power and their privilege uh, more than what the demographics necessarily actually say. Though I do think that's a big part of it because they're looking out in their, their churches and their pews and they're seeing, you know, no young smiling faces looking back at them. Um, and they can read the demographic trends, but for the most part, going very quickly away from them. A good marker for the demographics is, you, we know a lot about Christian nationalism now, and we've been studying a lot more about that. 
Uh, and I do talk about that a lot more in my first book, and this book is dedicated to Christian nationalists. Um, these are the people who believe that America was founded as a Christian nation, that were based on Judeo-Christian principles, and that we've strayed from that foundation. And they use the language of return and getting back to our godly roots to justify all manner of hateful public policy uh, and other actions. Things from Anything from the, the family separation policy at the border, which a lot of people forget Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Jeff Sessions both justified by citing Romans 13 in the Bible, um, to the Muslim ban, uh, to the insurrection. Uh, I, I, I helped spearhead a report about the role that Christian nationalism played in that insurrection, and it ended up becoming testimony for the January 6th committee. Uh, we know that demographically about a quarter of the country are very strong Christian nationalists. Uh, about another quarter are like lukewarm Christian nationalists. Uh, another quarter are opposed, generally, to the idea. And then another quarter are very opposed. That would be me. Um, and and uh, there's some really great, uh, two really phenomenal sociologists, Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry, who've done really amazing work on this. They wrote a book called Taking America Back for God. And then Perry wrote another one with Gorski called The Flag and the Cross, which is in a really short primer. To, if you, if you really want to dig into more of the, the demographics of this, those would be the two places I would point you to. And Perry and Whitehead actually also just wrote, I believe, uh, an op-ed for Time, I think it was, that came out this morning of kind of breaking down what we know from the elections and the shift there already. So th those would be the, the three resources I would direct you to for more detail. So can legislation fix some of these problems is the first question. And your hopscotch back and forth, are you asking if we expand the court, what happens? Or so, I mean, I, I think my answer to your first question, we'll, we'll get to the second one then. One of the themes of American Crusade is that this court wants to take these cases because it is desperate to create this weapon, to redefine religious freedom as a weapon of privilege for the select few. If Congress were to pass a law, uh, or let, let's, let me, let's just use abortion as the example. Let's say Congress codifies... Row in the Women's Health Protection Act, which is a very real possibility and I hope happens. That is going to end up back before the Supreme Court at some point. I mean, guaranteed, they will figure out a way to get it there, and this court wants to take these cases. Uh, it, and, you know, in a lot of respects, the end of Roe is just the beginning. They're not done with the right to an abortion. I mean, we all saw that the We'll leave it to the states. It was bull. We all knew that was from the beginning. They're coming for contraception. They're coming for marriage equality. They're coming for everything. They are not going to stop unless we stop them. And I don't think you can do that with legislation. I, there have been a lot of really great, you know, after, in the results of the election, a lot of people have really like great ideas, things we can do, Green New Deal, all this awesome stuff. None of that is going to work unless you fix the court first. The first thing you have to do is expand the Supreme Court, and then you have to do serious democratic reform, small d democratic form to protect and expand the franchise. If you don't do those things, nothing else matters. All of those, all of the legislative solutions are band-aids that are going to get ripped off by the court. Yeah, I mean, the question's about uh, the trans panic and demonizing trans people. Uh, I mean, and especially related to public schools. I mean, they, they are always looking for 
a new demon, I mean, literally, to, to put out uh, in front of the people uh, to, to scare them, to fear monger. I, I, unfortunately, there was a section in the book um, that I had to I ended up cutting in the end uh, that talk, talks specifically about the fear, the neuroscience of fear mongering that Fox News and a lot of the right wing media outlets engage in. I was a neuroscience major in undergrad, and so I got it was too much of a tangent, really, to put in a law book. But um, it, I actually, actually, if you want to read it, I put it up on my Patreon uh, page. But they need a bad guy around which to unite, uh, and it's one of the things that their side does really, really, really well. Th their side is far better <laughs> at storytelling in part because they're not bound by the truth. But, I mean, like think about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the gay wedding cake case, right? I mean, that was a case about a company, a business discriminating against a minority that is protected because of the historical hate that it has suffered. And by the time it got to the Supreme Court, it was a case about a poor, persecuted Christian artist who just wanted to do his own art and the government wouldn't let him. The government was forcing him to go against the Bible. I mean, they do a phenomenal job pushing their narratives. It's not grassroots is what I'm trying to get at here. It's, it's all very, very top down. And I think that the, the trans panic that we're seeing is a very, very big part of that. I, I'm legitimately afraid. I have a number of trans friends who I, I've worked alongside in this movement. I've written alongside in this movement. Um, and I'm legitimately afraid for, for a few of them who are in not safe states any longer. Um, I, I think when I said that we had a long road ahead of us, I, I, all, I should have added that I think things are going to get worse before they're going to get better. Uh, and I think in particular, I'm, I'm worried about our trans brothers and sisters and cousins and siblings uh, taking the brunt of that if we're not careful. Uh, last question. Lifetime appointments is not written in the Constitution is a question. Where does that come from? It's <clears throat> in the Constitution. The language is have their appointments during good behavior, which has been interpreted to mean the only way you can get them off is through impeachment. Uh, and, and lifetime appointments are meant to be one way to have checks and balances on other branches of the government, uh, right? We have three branches of government. They're supposed to check and balance each other. And impeachment is supposed to be a check. A lifetime appointment is supposed to be a check on the other branches, too. They're not supposed to be beholden politically to these other branches. Congress is not supposed to, can't uh, change the salary of the judges for the, while they're, once they're on for the same reason. It's meant to be a check. Uh, I mean, we've seen that impeachment is not really a check. Um, but I, I think, I do not think, I, I'm going to take your question as what about some of these other solutions to the court, term limits. I don't think you get to term limits because of that language, because we have lifetime appointments, because it comes from constitutional language, and the people who interpret that constitutional language are <laughs> the people whose power you're trying to take away. There are some really creative solutions that you might be able to work around. All of them are really geared at removing that lifetime appointment, so I think it's hard. I, I think the institutionalist argument is you expand the Supreme Court. Not only have we done that seven times in our history, which is like every 35, 40 years or so, um, the court and the Congress and the executive are meant to balance and check each other. And one of the ways that Congress can check a court that is drunk on power, which is what we have right now, is by expanding and changing the court. And by the way, 
Mitch McConnell did it when it was politically convenient for him. He knocked it down to eight for more than a year. And then when it was politically convenient, he put it back up to nine. Let's expand the court. Thank you. You were just listening to Andrew Seidel, Weaponizing Religious Freedom. He spoke at the Wisconsin Book Festival in Madison in mid-November 2022. Andrew Seidel, a constitutional attorney, is vice president of Americans for Separation of Church and State. He's the author of American Crusade. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Medea Benjamin, Juan Gonzalez, Vijay Prashad, Rami Khuri, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Andrew Seidel, Weaponizing Religious Freedom, and his book, American Crusade, call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Norm Stockwell and The Progressive Magazine. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers singing Atheists Don't Have No Songs. This is the entire atheist hymnal right here. Christians have have their hymns and pages. Hymns and pages. Hava Nagilas for the Jews. For the Jews. Baptists have the rock of ages. Rock of ages. Atheists just sing the blues. Romantics play, romantics play, Claire de Lune, Claire de Lune, born again, sing he is risen, but no one ever wrote a tune, wrote a tune, for godless existentialism, for atheists, there's no good news, they'll never sing a song of faith. In their songs, they have a rule, the he is always lowercase, the he is always lowercase. Some folks sing a Bacchantata. Bacchantata. Lutherans get Christmas trees. Atheist songs add up to nada. Up to nada. But they do have Sundays free. Have Sundays free. Pentecostals sing. They sing to heaven. Sing to heaven. Coptics have the Book of Scrolls. Numerologists count, they count to seven, five, six, seven. Atheists have rock and roll. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith in their songs. They have a rule, the he is always lowercase. 
The he is always lowercase. Atheist. 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 Don't have no songs. Christians have their hymns and pages. Hymns and pages. Habanagilas for the Jews. For the Jews. Baptists have the rock of ages. Rock of ages. Atheists just sing the blues. Catholics dress up for mass and listen to Gregorian chants. Atheists just take a pass. Watch football in their underpants. Watch football in their underpants.